Christians, evangelical Christians, if it involves having to take seriously facts in the world that don't fit necessarily with how we were taught, we, we appear to be having difficulty learning anything new. This actually makes Christians one of the most retrograde and anti-humane forces on the planet. At a time when people need to pull together and, and solve common problems as fellow human beings, our, our tribe often stands in the way, and isn't that, isn't that just a tragedy? Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and you are listening to Keeping the Faith. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Hey everybody, thanks for listening again today. This is episode 11 of season 4, year 4 of my podcast here. That voice you heard just a little earlier was Dr. David P. Gushy, and you're about to hear a lot more from him today. We had a conversation earlier this summer, and we talked about his latest book, After Evangelicalism. It's about this crucial moment that much of the church in North America finds itself in today, a genuine crisis in the full use of that word, and I highly recommend the book. Uh, Dr. Gushy, a little bit more about him. He has been an ethicist, a pastor, and an author for almost the last 30 years. He is the Distinguished Professor of Christian Ethics at the historic Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. He is the past president of both the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Christian Ethics. His books have sold over 100,000 copies. They've been translated into a dozen languages. I first came across Dr. Gushy some 20 years ago. He wrote a book with Glenn Stason entitled Kingdom Ethics. David and his family live in Atlanta, Georgia, and he was on his back porch there in Atlanta when he joined me for this interview on everything from the theology post-Holocaust to his first career ambition, which was to make the starting lineup of the Atlanta Braves. It is their loss, but even as I record this introduction, the Atlanta Braves are on a nine-game winning streak and headed home to play the Yankees. So there's that. But none of our baseball banner made the final edited version for distribution, but what got in is worth your time. And if you find yourself challenged, if you enjoy what you hear today and what Dr. Gushy has to say, visit David's website. It is davidpgushy.com. That is David P G U S H E E.com. And you can explore his work further. But without any other delay, here is my conversation with Dr. David Gushy. As you heard in the introduction, I'm talking today with Dr. David Gushy, a 30-year veteran of academia and church ministry. He has been a pastor and a professor, an author, and an ethicist. That's how I came to know his work. Almost 20 years ago, David wrote a book with the late Glenn Stassen entitled Kingdom Ethics, where they make a rigorous application of the Jesus ethic via the Sermon on the Mount. It's a title I'll still have on my shelf and from which I have referenced many times over in my own writings. And it is my great pleasure to talk to Dr. Gushy today. Thank you, David, for taking some time. Ronnie, thanks for having me. 
other stellar books in David's quiver, and I'll put these in the show notes later, Still Christian Following Jesus Out of American Evangelicalism, published in 17, Changing Our Mind, which I found to be a watershed book on LGBTQ inclusion, published in 2019, and his most recent book around which our conversation will revolve today, After Evangelicalism, The Path to a New Christianity. David, I devoured this book in two days and wrote you right away. Wow. And, and uh, it came, only one other book uh, in the last 20 years has arrived on my desk. And I thought, this is exactly what I needed to hear. And it was one of Brian McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christianity. I was coming out of SBC life after the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message issues then, sort of uh, homeless. And I have that same sense of feeling now 20 years later. Yep. And this, this book arrives right on time. Can you, uh, can you introduce the book to us and just sort of what precipitated you to put these words in this particular form right now? There's a lot of us who have been feeling homeless. And I, did, I never expected uh, to be in that situation. But after evangelicalism was written, as the culmination of my journey into, to the center of, to the margins of, and then finally out of American evangelicalism. I was a 16-year-old convert to the Southern Baptist. Uh, I was Southern, ordained Southern Baptist pastor. I did youth ministry, children's ministry, pastoral work, taught at two Southern Baptist uh, schools, one Southern Baptist seminary, one Union University in West Tennessee. Um, and then when my teaching career took off, I became pretty well known as like the evangelical ethics guy, right? <laughs> Kingdom ethics, um, uh, and a number of, of, uh, other works. Um, in 2014, I wrote the first edition of changing our mind. Uh, I, I was writing from a position of power and, um, privilege in the evangelical world, you know, that kind of senior ethics guy. And I, what I wanted to do in that book was to encourage evangelicals to rethink uh, to the ground up the LGBTQ question. And the response was rage mainly and rejection of the ideas and of the author. So I got kind of forcibly propelled out of the evangelical world to the extent that that can happen. I mean, it isn't I mean, we don't do formal excommunication, but if you could, that's what was happening to me at that time. So I, I moved into um, a posture of rethinking my Christian, my, my Christian journey, my evangelical self-identification, and my sense of place in the world. So the Still Christian memoir that you mentioned, uh, I believe you mentioned in the lead-up, mm -hmm. uh, was my memoir-ish effort to reflect on what had happened to me and whether my critics were right that I had totally lost my way. Mm -hmm. um, but this, and then my conclusion was that no, actually, I believe that that book represented a faithful effort to follow Jesus as I understood Jesus. And then um, after evangelicalism was, was triggered by running into an awful lot of disillusioned, uh, homeless or almost homeless 
former or current evangelicals by 2018, 2019, who were wondering what had happened to that community, wondering whether they belong there anymore, and uh, where to go next. It was, it was not really triggered by what is now pretty visibly, you know, viewable on Twitter, like, you know, the, the deconstruction types, you know, right. the, the ex-evangelical thing was kind of just becoming visible to me. It was more personal than that. I was talking to individuals who I was meeting in my uh, ministry and in my academic roles. But I was also mainly wanting to say, what is on the other side of evangelicalism if you have left it behind? Theologically, methodologically, politically, ethically, what do we now believe? Um, how do we help people still stay connected to Jesus, even if they have had to leave evangelicalism? And that's really who the book is for. I so identified with the with the the word you use that you've adequately adequately described here, and it has so many biblical roots to it. The the word exile, yeah, uh, wandering about, or you know, feel like you've been forcibly pushed away from home. You know. Um, I actually think that exile, <laughs> exile is a central biblical paradigm. Um, homelessness or being a resident alien. Mm -hmm. uh, people like Stanley Harawas argued that that's how we should always think of ourselves, right? If we feel too much at home, we're probably getting too cozy with power centers wherever we are. I was the kind of person who would get invited to give these keynote lectures or sermons everywhere under the evangelical banner. But when I decided I needed to rethink the LGBT question, and I found myself kind of forcibly exiled to the place somewhere on the margins near where LGBT people have always been. Uh, so that that was galvanizing. And I realized I had grown pretty comfortable with that influential position. And it was probably better for me to not have it anymore. You know, I was thinking more clearly and more liberatively by listening to and being in solidarity with exiles than by being the guy who's at the front of the room giving the talks, right? But I was also concerned by 2018, 2019 about bitterness and trauma and a homelessness that leads to an abandonment of the faith. And that's not the, that's not where my journey has gone. I want people to find a new spiritual home with Jesus instead of post Jesus. And that's as a pastor, an identity that has never left me. That was important to me. Uh, early on in this book, there's a, a self-scoring test of 25 indicators. If you, you know, it's one of those, you might be uh, an evangelical or were an evangelical. Is there any hope for me? I scored 25 out of 25. <laughs> <laughs> Every one of them. That's so funny. You know, I just threw that in there. And I mean, there's a couple pretty obscure ones in there. I mean, let's face it. I mean, little, little snippets of music uh, or obscure little lines, but 25 out of 25 is pretty, you're pretty far in there. Or you yeah, were. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I was for sure. And uh, <laughs> I was raised so fundamentalist. I wanted to be a Southern Baptist. You know, it's kind of the joke, you know, Appalachian, King James only pre-millennial hard hardcore it's pretty hardcore uh, yeah stuff uh out of the georgia mountains and um 
I moved to into the into Southern Baptist life, and it was strangely to say people hear this and they won't believe it. It was more liberating from where I came. Mm-hmm. And then I saw it take, and I don't think this is exclusive to Southern Baptist. It began to take the journey back to where I came out of in many ways. And so what is that power of the subculture that, that you see and have witnessed and, and observed? Evangelicalism, I end up concluding, was a political coalition building effort and a religious rebranding effort that began at mid-century of the last century to pull basically every kind of conservative, mainly white, sometimes beyond, Protestant together into a big tent to to marshal the numbers, and for a while it was a massive number of people, um, for political influence and religious influence in America, um, to build parachurch organizations, uh, to serve that community, in fact, to create a community out of these disparate subcultures. And that was the achievement to take all those different kinds of people from hills and hollers, Appalachian fundamentalists to uh, saddleback types out in Southern California and say, we are all quote unquote evangelicals. And then to build subcultural products for those perhaps as many as 75 or 100 million people at one point. Mm. Music, books, authors, bookstores, um, trinkets of all types, schools, parachurch organizations, um, in a kind of a common vocabulary. Music has played a big role. The consumer subcultures played a big role. The superstar authors mm-hmm. you know, played a big role. But after a while, it was successful so that if you were a self-identified evangelical, you could move from Colorado Springs to Richmond, Virginia, to Asheville, North Carolina, and find some outposts of that subculture. People who sang the same songs, read the same authors, and bought the same broad conservative theology. And that subculture, I conclude, while having some beauty and value to it, in many ways, has has had some desperate flaws that are now kind of uh, creating a a massive wave of exiles. You mentioned uh, maybe Dr. Worthen that you quote uh, that evangelicalism has a uh, an authority crisis. Do are we seeing now this crisis of authority that is really sort of an apocalypse of sort and pulling the the curtain back? The issue of authority never goes away in any religious community. It must be resolved. One way to say it is. You have a God who is invisible and a whole bunch of flawed human beings attempting to serve this God and some mediating figures and texts and traditions and structures that are attempting to, to say, here's what it means to, to believe in and to serve this God faithfully, right? Protestantism was founded in rebellion against the way Catholicism handled authority, at least at one level, that the papacy, the, the Roman church and the popes were the final word on how authority was to be structured for the Catholic church. If you have a doubt about what the Bible says, or you think you have two passages that conflict, or you don't know what to think, ask the pope. 
past the magisterium. Protestantism rejected that and said, sola scriptura, Bible alone. But there was, um, it turned out, a, a naivete, um, at least in popular versions of Protestantism, of which a lot of evangelicalism is, because the Bible does not interpret itself. You have this text, this glorious, difficult, demanding text, set of texts, but somebody has to interpret it. And, and then you have to decide whose interpretations of these texts are going to be authoritative and, and what happens when you differ and uh, who decides, who resolves conflicts. So the, the authority issue didn't, didn't go away. You might say it just shifted ground. Evangelicalism had a, a specific authority problem because it was a trans-denominational movement so, you know, one way that denominations resolve their authority questions is they write creedal statements of some type, right? Uh, or they uh, create doctrinal bodies that say, here's what we believe. Mm -hmm. There never could be that for evangelicals because they were are Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists, Assemblies of God, et cetera, Anglicans, et cetera, et cetera. Um, complete hodgepodge ecclesiologically. Um, a lot of different beliefs about a lot of key things the idea was was papered over by the idea of some broad evangelical consensus that turns out not to have really existed so you might say the more daring deconstruction of all of that is that a lot of what passed for for authority and for the final answer to disputed questions in evangelicalism was resolved by just pre-existing powers basically conservative white guys who were in charge of these various institutions, you know, um, Christianity Today magazine, whatever Billy Graham said, whatever, you know, um, Jerry Falwell said, uh, whatever the National Association of Evangelicals tried to say. And, but here's, here's where it gets worse. When I was a kid, I at least believed that the people who were telling me what was authoritatively true were also serious or mainly serious followers of Jesus. And they seemed pretty serious about taking the example and life and teaching of Jesus seriously. There's a especially toxic kind of American white guy evangelicalism that we've seen surface a lot in the last while that seems to to have so little resemblance to Jesus, one, 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 one doesn't even know what to call it. It's just, let's just call, well, I mean, people are calling it toxic masculinity or, or white racism or uh, xenophobic Americanism or whatever, whatever doctrinal claims were made, whatever claims to biblical authority have been made. We're getting an awful lot of toxic white guy reactionary stuff in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that is, is deeply disillusioning and it is drive, driving a lot of disillusioned young right out of the church. The 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 latter half of this book, if, for folks who haven't read it, and I I can't commend it to you enough. The latter half of of the book, there David takes on issues with church and human sexuality and politics and race, and then in the first half of the book, you're showing your pastoral chops. I think where you you are talking about Jesus and the scriptures and particularly God. Uh, and how your view of God has changed. But, but to Jesus first, uh, you talk about the Jesus according to model. 
Jesus, according to Matthew, Jesus, according to Mark, Jesus, according to Jesus. And then there's that great section, Jesus, according to Gushy. And so if you were in a, in a summary for folks who are listening, who is Jesus according to Gushy for you today? He is the thoroughly Jewish prophet, Messiah, sent by God to proclaim the reign of God and ultimately that reign of God looks like the overturning of an unjust social order that, that crushes millions into the dust and siding with those on the margins inevitably and as predictably the son of, I believe Jesus to be the son of God, the Messiah of Israel who came preaching the kingdom of God and was met with uh, popular acceptance for a while, but ultimately authoritative rejection, crucifixion, and death. And God raised him from the dead. He was um, the embodier and the emissary of a new way of, of, of living on this planet, the way that God intended all along. He was murdered um, by the state and by the forces of religion. He was raised from the dead. And the church is supposed to be a community of people, the community of people committed to embodying his way now until he comes again. This is a bit different view that you've maybe had. I know different view than I was raised about what his death is all about. There's a, there's a individualized and a historical evangelical view of Jesus death. Um, Jesus came into the world to die on the cross to atone for my individual sins um, so that if I believe and accept what he has done for me, I can be saved from my sins and go to heaven when I die, right? Um, That was the gospel as I was presented it as a 16-year-old. And it's not all wrong, but it lacks um, anything about the social purposes of Jesus, uh, the historical context into which he came, the, the social, ethical, political kingdom of God vision that he preached. And I always thought that that, why did Jesus die on the cross piece? Well, he died for our sins, but why would Rome want to kill him? Was completely left out of evangelical preaching, right? Um, the authorities found Jesus intolerable because of the message uh, of the very, the very message that God's reign looks like a toppling of the reign of the powers of this world, the way that they operate. So he was executed because he was a threat. Um, But here's where I become more traditional. I do not believe that his death was just a political execution or just a martyrdom. It was also um, used by God for the redemption of the world, but now the redemption of the world um, is it's the whole world. It's the reclaiming of the whole world for God as king. Um, and so there's, you know, when I look at the cross, I still see the atonement for human sin, um, but I also see the pathway to the reign of God. 
um, and you might say the price that was paid for the reign of God and, and, and the prophetic suffering of Jesus then links him to other prophets who have died proclaiming a transformed world. Uh, you mentioned that Bonhoeffer quote, only the suffering God uh, can help. Yeah. Is, is that a, a good you know, handle on the suitcase of how you look at the cross as well? Jesus as, as the suffering son of God, Jesus as the suffering God. Jesus enters into, in his death, he, he identifies with and fully experiences the suffering of this world's victims. But in his ministry, he did the same thing. Um, in any scene, he seems to be looking to the margins, uh, the bleeding woman, the ignored child, um, the scorned uh, poor, the, the widow who has been convinced that she needs to give everything she has to support the temple, you know, um, uh, that is really a, 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 an agency of corruption in that system. Mm -hmm. um, the, the abandoned widow and orphan, uh, the widow crying out for justice day and night, wondering uh, where is God, you know, when, where's the judge, the just, the just judge. Um, the, the prostitute, um, the tax collector. So in, in every expression of love and solidarity and ministry that Jesus made to those on the margins, he further ensured his own marginalization and murder and suffering because that's what happens to those who go to the margins and identify with those there. Um, so, so it's, it's the travail of Jesus's suffering as the culmination of his identification with the beaten up in this world and as the path to what we believe will be finally the reclamation of this unjust world that really rivets me. Keeping the Faith is brought to you without ads or commercial interruption of any kind, except for this one invitation. I have friends who are inspired by what they hear from Keeping the Faith, and those friends support my work. But you can support this podcast as well by buying me a coffee. Buy Me a Coffee is a tiny little link where you can throw a few bucks into my tip jar and keep me busy behind the counter serving up the best episodes I have to offer. Simply go to buymeacoffee.com slash McBrayer, and you can easily and securely donate to the cause. You can also go to my website, ronniemcbrayer.org, and click on Podcast. You will find several ways to lend a hand, and you can also choose your favorite listening platform, be it Apple, Podbean, or Spotify, so that you will never miss a single life-changing, day-making, death-defying episode. Thank you for being a regular listener. You know, a five-minute summary doesn't doesn't do uh, the chapter justice that you've that you've written there, and I appreciate you speaking to that. Well, uh, a few pages earlier, and and uh, I stopped even before I finished the book. I, I've got to to pages 68, 69, and seventy in your book, and that's when I stopped and wrote you. Uh, uh, it's the most compelling few paragraphs in the entire piece. 
And it's a section you title burning children is where I begin. Mm. And uh, I, I had never, uh, I didn't know the rabbi that you spoke of there. You said he had never published a book. Uh, yeah, it was all but, essays. Yeah. yeah. Can you speak to uh, your view of God, your view of theology, reconstructing uh, a healthier view of theology based on that little section right there? And, and if, if you would. Um, well, you know, Ronnie, the, the theological voice is, is kind of not my first language, you know, ethics is my first language. Right. Um, so I, I was stretching here, um, in these chapters on like, uh, how to construe scriptural authority and, um, uh, how to, how to think about theological method, uh, what to make of the God of the Bible, what to make of Jesus and of the church. So I hope, I hope it was successful. Uh, a lot of people seem to have found it to be helpful, but, but in thinking about the, the theological influences in my work, um, the theology that was written after the Holocaust uh, was extremely significant in forming me in my 20s. I was at Union Seminary. Uh, it was the period in which there was a lot of attention that was being given to the Holocaust. Schindler's List was made during this time. There were conferences and things on TV. I, I did a comprehensive exam about Holocaust theology, and I did a dissertation on Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. One of the people on my dissertation committee was Rabbi Irving Greenberg, and Greenberg um, embodied uh, the pain of the thoughtful Jewish rabbi and scholar in reflecting on what to make of the Holocaust. Um, and his, his writings broke my heart and really, really shaped me. A few, a few pieces make it into this chapter, but um, one of them was the revelatory claim. He had been reading about um, children being burned alive at Auschwitz. And this happened not all the time, but it happened sometimes when they, the Nazis, the people who ran the camps had more people to kill than they had functioning gas chamber and crematoria capacity. Because uh, that was a mass charnel house of mass murder. And so sometimes, Elie Wiesel attests to this, he saw this. Sometimes children would be burned alive at Auschwitz, taken from their mother's arms and thrown into a fiery, you know, basically a massive pyre. And Greenberg, read about one of these incidents and it crystallized for him this claim no statement theological or otherwise should be made that would not be credible in the presence of the burning children and for those who knew his work it never left us he's still alive by the way he's in his 90s oh. but this was called uh the burning children test no statement theological or otherwise, should be made that would not be credible in the presence of the burning children. And as I recall in that section, I talk about thinking about my own grandchildren and um, their preciousness, their infinite preciousness to me. But what that means is, it means a lot. Um, it means that the theological claims must be tested by reality, um, including by the reality of great evil. And 
claims that we make about the way God works in the world must not just be untethered to what actually happens. So if we say, you know, if it happens, God willed it, that kind of deterministic theology that many of us were raised mm -hmm. in, um, and then you picture children being burned alive at Auschwitz, it just does not hold together. Um, you, unless, unless you're able to suspend any moral sensitivity whatsoever, a God who would orchestrate such events. So this must mean that God's way in the world is not a way of overweening power. Um, and it also must include a great deal of suffering on God's part at what a hash human beings, the crown of creation have made of our freedom and of the world that we, that we dwell in and of the human beings that we've been called to care for. So I believe in a suffering Jesus, but I also believe in a suffering God, you know, mm -hmm. the God who weeps and, and mourns at what a mess we make of human life. And um, so an interesting thing that Greenberg also says, and I think I talk about in that same section is the covenant between God and Israel has been permanently damaged by the Holocaust. But he says, he says, God, this is a very creative move on his part. Not everybody agrees, of course, but he says, God does not have the right to demand obedience of us anymore. Wow. Mm -hmm. But, but some of us Jews says Rabbi Greenberg are still choosing to live according to the terms of the covenant that, that we agree, that we agree to as a people. So the concept there is voluntary covenant. We will live in love and justice and mercy, even though um, God has not seemingly always kept God's promises to us. We will we will live in love, justice, and mercy. And but that 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 then is a kind of a an open invitation to others to do the same. So in the affairs of this planet, it seems that the best way to think about it is there are communities of people who are committed to living in love, justice, and mercy, inciting in solidarity with the, with the suffering in the name of God, sometimes not in the name of God, but they are the ones who are living, you might say, in voluntary covenant with, with the God that we meet in the Hebrew Bible. And we do not wait on God to solve our problems for us. We live in the way that God's law and, and God's son makes clear we are to live. And in that sense, we, we attempt to do kingdom of God kind of reality now, and maybe even to ease the suffering of God for the, for the grief that God suffers in this, in looking at what we have made of this world. I will never forget that analogy as it has stuck with you all these years uh it will never leave me well and uh you know right it's just an obscenity after once you've thought of it in that way you can think of other applications no statement theological or otherwise should be made that would not be credible in the presence of 
the slave holds of ships from Africa to North America, um, or in the presence of a body hanging from a lynching tree, yeah, um, or a child being sexually abused. You know, in other words, evil matters. It is a fundamental datum of theology, and both our theology and our ethics must respond to the evil that is there. Right. There's just so much here, as I said earlier, on the church, uh, sexuality, politics, race, and, and we don't have time for all of that today, and and uh, so much more on the subjects we covered. And there's a powerful, tiny uh, few paragraphs, David, uh, that maybe you'll get to writing about one day on Christian humanism that I thought yeah. was great. Uh, seven or eight points there. It's a Renaissance idea. Yeah, basically, you know, that if God became human in Christ, all of human experience matters. Of course, all of planetary experience matters too, which speaks to our broader environmental reality. But, but human experience is, is dignified. The human person is elevated. Um, nobody, nobody doesn't matter. Everybody matters. Um, but it also means, Christian humanism means to me that we want to make the world a more humane place for all. Our religion should contribute to human betterment, to human civilization. Um, we should honor the achievements of human civilization and work to correct the flaws. We should look for truth where it is to be found and just instead of just thinking we are the only ones who have any truth, right? Mm -hmm. With our little interpretations of the Bible. I, I'm countering the kind of um, closedness to other data, to other uh, sources of knowledge in the world, you know, um, as part of that is a response to things that have gone wrong in Christian higher education, you know, um, the, and, and I think we're actually seeing some of the fruit of it from the fruit of that at this time, Christians, evangelical Christians being the ones most likely to drag their feet related to the vaccine or mass or about climate change or, um, whatever it might be. Um, if it involves having to take seriously, facts in the world that don't fit necessarily with how we were taught we we appear to be having difficulty learning anything new mm -hmm. this actually makes christians one of the most retrograde and anti-humane forces on the planet at a time when people need to pull together and, and solve common problems as fellow human beings our our tribe often stands in the way and isn't that isn't that just a tragedy it's it's a failure it's a it's a failure of basic christian discipleship it is. And, and this actually goes back to the origins of evangelicalism in fundamentalism. And a lot of what fundamentalism was, was a reaction against modern science, against evolution, against biblical criticism, modern biblical studies. Um, even if you want to go further back against the idea that the earth, you know, revolves around the sun or that, you know, that the earth isn't flat or whatever, this kind of Christian know-nothingism, deeply funded by the idea that the Bible, as we have interpreted it, holds the only relevant truth, makes us socially retrograde at a time when we need people pulling together to solve common problems. On almost any issue you could talk about, if you poll, evangelical Christians come out worst, whatever it is. Immigration, welcoming immigrants or uh, taking climate change seriously or uh, taking vaccines or whatever it might be. 
I mean, do you think this is really what Billy Graham and Carl Henry and all those dudes had in mind in the 1940s? I really don't think so, but it is who this community has become. And there's a lot of reasons why a lot of people are leaving it behind. With that said, where do you see, sort of as a wrap up here, we evangelical exiles, where does this go over the next decade? Because I, I, I'm of the persuasion that evangelicalism, as we have known it, is not sustainable and should not be sustained. I so think, so yeah. evangelicals leaving, what is the path forward? I think a way to think about white evangelicalism is it is contracting, shrinking, aging, and uh, radicalizing. Angry white guys on TV, shaking their fist at everything new. So I have no investment in that project anymore. Okay, so what happens to everybody else? It's millions of people, mainly younger. Some of them are lost to the church forever and maybe bring their moral commitments forward in other ways, political or whatever. Um, some of them are going to find their way into mainline churches, already are. So they, we could become a source of renewal for mainline churches. Some are going to found already are founding or altering church communities with a post-evangelical spirit. And these are more likely to be multiracial, morally progressive, and inclusive communities. Some of these communities are going to live online, but I think there's a whole lot of institution building to be done in the post-evangelical space, if institutions still matter. I don't know. But where are people going to go to school? What books they're going to read? Who are the publishers going to be? What online spaces are, are we going to be in? A lot of that is being formed right now. Every community needs thought leaders, gathering spaces, worship centers, every religious community. And so a lot of that is being formed right now. I explore that a little bit in the book, but I, there's a lot I don't know yet. And everything's been interrupted by COVID, right? Right. We don't know what the in-person space is going to look like because it continues to be delayed. I mean, if you think about when COVID started, a lot has happened since then. So the, the actual space where post-evangelicals are going to land is still to be determined, I think. And we will live in the mystery of that. You have been listening to Distinguished Professor of Christian Ethics, Mercer University, my mentor from afar. He doesn't even know the influence he's had. Dr. David Gushy, thank you so much for your wisdom and your time today and sharing from your back porch. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Ronnie. Hey, can I point people to a resource? Please do right now. Absolutely. Uh, send people to uh, davidpgushy.com, my website, uh, where uh, you can see you know, spe you know, speeches, sermons, all kinds of resources and sign up for an email newsletter that I put out. So davidpgushy.com. That is davidpgeshi.com. That'll be in the show notes as well. And we'll make sure that uh, that gets advertised properly. I think you're a thought leader for what is coming. And this last book is a great contribution to that. It's a great path forward for, for so many that are just looking not to recreate the faith, but to recover uh, from some of the spiritual abuse they've been through uh, to put back together a faith in Christ that is suited for the 21st century. I hope it can be that. I've been gratified by the response. And thanks for a great conversation today. Absolutely. Thanks again. I appreciate you so much. You have been listening to Keeping the Faith, the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. 
You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at ronniemcbrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. Thanks to Shutterstock Incorporated, located in New York City's Empire State Building, no less, for producing and licensing my theme music. Bobby Rains provides recording and technical expertise. Tim Riles created the Keeping the Faith logo and artwork. And Lynn Sunshine on My Shoulder Crow is credited with any and all photography. And as always, Toby and Mo, the two small wonder dogs that run my home, assisted with all editing. I'm Ronnie McBrayer. This has been Keeping the Faith, and I thank you for listening.